Well, amen. This morning we just sang the song of Revelation, the song of his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And in Philippians, we've been studying what we've called the Christmas hymn or the Christmas poem. And really it's been this idea that there's a place in heaven that God reigns and God chose to come to earth in our likeness. And in our likeness, he chose to not take the reputation to be grasped, his rights to be grasped, but rather he came to serve us and to serve us by dying even on a cross. And yet God exalted him or raised him up or rose him from the grave and exalted him on high that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And this Christmas poem we've been memorizing, this Christmas poem we've been meditating on has become the pattern for the book of Philippians. Every section of Philippians has mirrored some part of this poem and how Paul has organized it. In fact, this section today, you're going to see the words he chooses, the analogies he uses. He's going to talk about how Christians live out this new kingdom using the metaphor of the resurrection. How do we live in the resurrection life? So this section of Philippians complements the resurrection. It can be summarized this way. Paul basically says, hey, brethren, walk conformed to his new body from Paul. So I want you to learn. I want you to learn how to live in the power of his resurrection. Not according to your own power, it'll wear out. Not according to your own might, it'll run dry. How do we live in accordance to his resurrection life and resurrection power? Let me show you how he says it, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into what it means. He begins in chapter 3. says, brethren, join me. Follow my example as I'm trying to live out this resurrection life. But I want you to make a note He's going to note there's some people who walk one way and some people who walk another way. Note those who walk as you have from us found a pattern. Remember, the Christmas poem is a Christmas pattern for Christian living. For many walk, here's the bad way, don't walk like them. For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping. There's a way to walk to be an enemy of Christ whose end is destruction whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame. And the way they walk is by setting their mind on earthly things. Don't follow that pattern. But rather, follow our pattern, that your citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform your lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. So two ways to walk. There's a way to walk according to your flesh, your own earthly appetites, your own earthly desires, giving into anger and lust. There's another pattern to walk where you have access to his power, his resurrection power, his earthly kingdom. As you live out his heavenly kingdom in the midst of this earthly kingdom, you begin to see your heart transformed, your marriage transformed, your life transformed. So his main point here in this short little section is he wants you and I to walk the resurrection path. This pattern he sets up for us by doing two things. Setting your mind constantly on this new citizenship in heaven and this new body that he's going to give you. Walk according to this pattern by setting your mind on certain things. Your citizenship in heaven and this new body he's going to give you. So how do we do that? How do we walk that way? 
And why? Because when you understand this heavenly kingdom, you walk in freedom, not in guilt and shame. You walk with a new set of priorities, and you walk with the motivation to know how to access his resurrection power. So remember, he gives us one example of how not to walk, and two examples how we should walk. So he starts off with a negative. How do we not walk? He says, well, don't walk by being controlled by your dead appetites. He goes, our culture around us teaches us to live according to willpower or according to your appetites. In fact, the, the Greeks taught something called Greek dualism, which is pretty, pretty much anything you do with your mind is spirit is good, but whatever you do with your body, God doesn't care about. Your body's evil anyway, so give in to your appetites for food. Give in to your appetites for pleasure. Let your appetites run amok because God doesn't care anyway. And Paul says, no, 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 don't walk that way. Don't walk by being controlled by your dead appetites. He says, brethren, there are many people who are walking in the, in the path of their dead appetites, in the power of their dead appetites. And he, he explains it. He says, number one, when I think of them, I weep. It's not a good weeping either. It's like, oh, my goodness, off the track. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. And ultimately that path that might look good temporarily, might look good for a little bit, its end is destruction. It's going to end in destruction. This is not good. This is not going to end well. But then he gets to the heart of what does it mean to walk in their pattern. He says the real heart of the issue, the real main thing going on here is they have a God, lowercase g, is their belly. So the word he uses for their belly is kolia, which is their hollow heart or their hollow gut. They're letting their hollowness, their gut, their instinct, their appetites that are hollow drive everything they do. Their hollowness is their God. See, God has put into each one of us an eternal hole that only he can fill. And many of us as Christians, we know that God has put into that hole, that God-shaped hole in our life. However, then we start to live as a Christian, and we kind of say, hey, Christ is going to get me to heaven, but we really go back to those temporal things, those appetites to satisfy the hole in our heart. We power up in anger because that's how we feel in control. We worry because that's how we can, can manage our own anxiety. We worry to fill that hole of anxiety. We use stuff, things, to fill the hole. And Paul says when your gut, when that hollow appetite becomes your God, it's going to lead to destruction. You're walking in the way of dead appetites. And you'll see that if you go into history, you'll see the, the Greeks, because they they said, given to all your appetites, you'll see even in Pompeii, lots and lots of just restaurants and public bars, you know, gluttony could be encouraged in all different forms because to give in to your appetites was to give in what makes life really worth living. In fact, when I was in Ephesus, it, there's literally a footprint carved into the concrete. You can follow the footprints and it will take you directly to the brothel. Doesn't that look like a comfortable bed? That's the brothel bed. But you literally would walk in the footprints on your way to the brothel. That's how you get there. And as a way of this, this path, it looks like giving into your appetites, giving into lust, giving into pleasure, giving into your anger, giving to whatever. It looks like it's going to lead to good things. It's going to lead to destruction. And Paul says, I don't want you to walk in those ways. Now, in one sense, we think, hey, we're modern people. We are so far beyond these primitive people with their primitive gods. But in one sense, the same gods, lowercase g, they were using to fill their hollowness are the same gods we use today. And it's easy to shake your finger at other people. I can't believe those people would, would, would bow down to that god. But you're going to see the Greek gods that they had back then 
are the same ones we have now. It's the same things we use to fill those hollow places in our heart. What's an example? Well, Dionysus is one. The god of wine. There's nothing wrong with enjoying wine, enjoying God's creation of wine. But when you use wine to keep from feeling a feeling you don't want to feel, it's moved from being a thing that you enjoy to a God that's trying to fill a void. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to feel lonely. So Dionysus, the god of wine, has become a way to fill the void. And now it's become more than a thing. Whenever you use something to keep from feeling something you don't want to feel, you've made it into a lowercase god in your life. That's easier for some of us. We may not struggle with wine. We may, we may shake our finger at other people and feel better than them, except, you know what, we use Demeter. Demeter was the goddess of the harvest. Whenever things are going bad, we remind ourselves about work. The harvest is going well. I worked hard. I got a good field. Did you see my crop? See how big my farm is? We use not just work as something we enjoy and something we give and something we worship through our work. No, work becomes a way we fill a void for meaning or for purpose or for finding our identity. Demeter becomes our God to fill that void. And other people go, oh, I can't believe I'm not a workaholic. Well, ours might be Aphrodite and Eros. It's how we look. And we work out really hard. And we discipline ourselves very hard. And we eat really well. Because how we look, how people perceive us. We want to look beautiful. We want to be with beautiful people. And we find our identity. We fill that void for meaning and purpose through Aphrodite or Eros or pleasure or lust. Some of us lust after pleasure. Some lust after comfort. Some of us lust after power. That was another God. The God of Aries. The God of war and power. If I had more influence, if I had more territory, if I had more employees, if I had that bigger title, if I, if I, if I, if I. All of these are good things, but when these gods become your belly, the thing that fills that vacuum in your hole, it will ultimately lead you to destruction. That's what Paul's getting at here. That if you only follow the appetites that the culture offers, the, the gods of the culture that you're in, it will not lead to the path that brings you joy and satisfaction. I'm reading a book right now about a book dealer, a, a boat dealer. So his uh, company makes high-end boats. And they were doing really, really well, and they began to expand. They did really, really well. They expanded. They kind of over-expanded right before the financial crisis. And all of a sudden, everything that was going incredibly well crumbled in front of them. Guy was a Christian CEO running the company, and he's just devastated that they had to go into bankruptcy to reorg. Chapter 11, they're reorganizing, trying to get back on track, and sure enough, as they're coming out of the financial crisis, they got some things realigned, renegotiated their debts, and they paid their debtors like 50 cents on the dollar in order to get things back on track. Everything legal, everything above board, just a tragic circumstance. Now the company's back on track. They're starting to move in a good direction. They're starting to get back into not only profits, but high profits. And as he began to set his mind, not on his appetites for just his own profits and his own uh, priorities, he began to think about his yes being yes and his no being no with those original creditors. He said, you know what? Legally, we only had to pay them back 50 cents on the dollar. We reorged to get things going well. We're now doing well again. Let's set our mindset on the kingdoms of heaven and let's try and repay our debtors back a dollar on the dollar. So even though he didn't legally have to, because he was able to, he decided to walk not in the appetite of what would be best for him, but what would be best for the people he had made a deal with. 
the creditors who had trusted him and invested in him. His company paid back all of his creditors. It took several years, dollar for dollar, as he set his mind as a Christian CEO on a different kingdom and a different set of priorities. Not just doing what's legal, but doing above and beyond what's legal. What would it look like for you? What is your unique lowercase God? Is it comfort? Is it pleasure? Is it power? Is it reputation? What is that unique God? And what would it look like you to live for or set your mind, not on the earthly things that God teaches us to fill our void with, but the higher kingdom? And to walk in that pattern. Because Paul contrasts this, walking in your dead appetites, for this idea of walking according to the Christmas poem. To walk with your mindset set on these heavenly priorities. That you know what heaven does? Heaven adapts to other people. You know what heaven does? Heaven humbles itself. Heaven serves other people. Even at great cost to itself, it's willing to sacrifice itself. Even to death on a cross. What does it look like for me to set my mind on these heavenly priorities? Knowing that if I do, that's where he exalts. And to find your life, you lose it. It's better to give than to receive. What does it look like for when I humble myself, he will exalt me. And I, like Jesus, will be seated at the right hand of God as a joint heir with Christ. And I live in light of what he's going to do for me. So whatever happens in this life, when I serve, when I sacrifice, I'm going to trust his resurrection power, that his priorities and his kingdom is the way to live life. That's what Paul's going to get at here. He says, now, don't follow their end, which leads to destruction. Their God is their belly. They set their mind on earthly things. Contrast, if you want to walk according to my pattern and Christ's pattern, you need to set your mind on something different. Your citizenship, your rights, your value, your real priorities come from a citizenship in heaven from which we eagerly wait for our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. You remember we learned that Philippi was set up as a Roman colony. And so though you lived in Macedonia, you had all the rights as if you were living in Rome. You had all the cultural rights. You had all the rights of a, of, a, of a citizen related to taxation. You didn't have as many taxes living in Philippi as you did in Rome. You could act here as if you were living there. And Paul picks up the same idea to say as Christians, I want you to live here on earth as if you're from there in heaven. He's getting at the idea that Jesus talked about. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to live here as if I'm living there. I'm going to live out the kingdom of God in my marriage. What does it look like today, God, for me to adapt to my spouse, for me to serve my spouse, for me to sacrifice for my spouse, and you will glorify and put life into me when I do it. You'll exalt me. I don't need to argue about my reputation and needing to be right. I'm going to serve. That's the idea he's getting at. And he's saying, the way you do that, the way you're able to do that is you need to functionally have Jesus be your Savior and your Lord. I say that functionally. See, this word Savior, which sounds very religious, right? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, some Christians say. But these were phrases used all through the culture at that time. There were lots of things that could be your Savior and could be your Lord or your God. 
So the question is, what is your real God, your real leader, your real priority, and what is your real Savior, the thing that saves you? Well, there's lots of examples in that time. I'll show you a coin here. This coin is from uh, Ptolemy. And on the coin it says, Ptolemy, the Savior. Because in 284 B.C., he saved the island of Rhodes. Man, that leader is my Savior. That politician is my Savior. That money is my Savior. That man's power is my Savior. So culture will offer you all kinds of things, money, power, politics, to be your Savior. And so when somebody criticizes your politics, you're real defensive because it's not just politics, it's your Savior, right? Same thing was happening back then. Here's another example. Zeus. Zeus was known as, on the bottom of the statue it says, the title Savior. He's our Soter. For many of us, we have followed the example of Zeus. Somebody gets mad at us, we power up, we get angry. We say, I got a, I got a short fuse. Because our anger is our Savior when we feel embarrassed, we make a mistake. Instead of admitting where we're wrong, we use anger as our Savior to save face, as our Savior to get in control. We use worry as our Savior, our Soter. Here's another example. This is the god Asclepius. So long before, if you've ever been to a doctor's office, you'll notice the staff with a snake going around it. That's the staff of Asclepius. So Asclepius was a Greek god, and he would bring healing or bring health to people. Here's an example of somebody whose ear was healed by Asclepius. And so they wrote down, Asclepius is my soter, my savior. A lot of times we turn our health into our savior. And when we lose our health, we get very, very mad and devastated at God because our health was our savior. It was our identity. It was how we, we saw ourselves. I was always an athlete. What am I going to do now that I'm an athlete anymore? Here's another example of Nero, the Caesar of God. He's the God. He's the Lord of our life. Now, here's why Christianity is hard to implement and hard to understand. It's simple, but it's difficult. The Bible says that Jesus came to save you from your bad works and your good works. Both are equally challenging. So you step in your own little castle. This is how you find your identity. And Jesus comes and says, you don't live up to your own standards. You're more insecure than you realize. Yeah, you're more narrow-minded than you realize. You're more selfish than you realize. There's a line of good and evil that goes right through every human heart. And you don't live up to your own standards. The problem is many of us find our identity and I'm basically a good person. In fact, every time I, I see a, a new couple who wants to get married, they'll just talk about how they, they're wonderful, they found the perfect person, and they both think they're both basically good people. And they are basically good people. As long as they get what they want. <laughs> but when they don't get what they want, we find out they're not basically good people. And then the problem, of course, is not that I'm wanting bad things. The problem is that you have unfair expectations. The problem is not that I'm gruff, it's that you're insensitive or you're overly sensitive, right? So we can't really acknowledge our bad works fully because we're built our identity on it. So Jesus comes to save us from our bad works. But he equally comes to save us from our good works. He says your good works are inadequate. And for many of us, we have made our good works our savior. And so when we get feedback from a spouse or from a coworker or from a boss who tells us something we did wrong, we can't hear it because we've defined ourselves by, I'm a good person, I'm a good Christian, I do the right thing. We define ourselves, our good works, I'm a good parent. Then you find out that your kids are rebellious. 
A teacher calls you up and says, um, little Johnny lied today. My kids would never lie. I'm a Christian. I raise them according to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Here's how you can find out who your functional Savior and God is. When you build your castle, not on Jesus, but on your own good works or not being honest about your own bad works, three things happen. Number one, you find yourself needing to defend yourself. How good are you at taking feedback and criticism? See, we need to defend ourselves because we've placed our identity in whatever we're being criticized by. Our work, our parenting, our cooking, our beauty, our decorating. So you get real defensive because you don't say, hey, whatever someone's bringing to me, it's probably something Jesus already died for, probably something I do need to acknowledge or at least consider. I don't need to defend myself if Jesus is my Savior. But if my parenting is my Savior, if my reputation is my Savior, if my work progress is my Savior, it's very hard to take feedback. Here's another test. What are you willing to lie about? Chad, I'm a Christian. I don't lie. Well, I lie. And if I'm smart enough to lie, and if I'm discerning enough to trace my lies, I will find that my lies almost always point back to my real functional Savior. Oh, I lied because I want people to feel good about me. And people's appearance, my reputation, people's acceptance of me, making people happy as my Savior. So I lie to protect my castle. I lie and, and, and get defensive about my castle. Whenever I have to defend myself, that's my functional Lord and Savior. And so the challenge of Christianity is not only to accept Jesus as your forgiver and leader for heaven, but to live it out in marriage and to live it out in relationships where I say, you know what, Jesus, you are my Savior. So if, if somebody criticizes, if I lose part of my reputation, if I lose part of my health, I love those things, I like those things, but I'm not devastated because they aren't my Savior. And I can hear feedback that I don't particularly like because they're not defining me, they're just talking about something I did that you probably already died for. See, Jesus comes to save us from our good works and our bad works. I'll give you an example. I saw a movie in 1999. It's called uh, Broke Down Palace. It was based on a true story of two 16-year-olds, teenagers in New York, who decided they wanted to take a trip. And their parents didn't think that was very wise for them to go on a national, international trip together. And the kids said in this article, I'm 16. I could ride the subway. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> and that inspired this movie, which is a fictional account of what's the worst that could happen. So these two best friends, 16, 17-year-old, they tell their parents they're going to Hawaii, but they switch and fly to London. When they arrive in London in the movie, they meet an Australian who starts flirting with both of them. He talks about not staying in London, but to moving on to Thailand. So they go on to Thailand to meet him up there, and when they arrive, the police pull them aside and check their bags and find heroin in their bags that this Australian guy had planted in there to get through customs. They think, well, what's the big deal? It wasn't us. Not a big deal. Well, they took it very seriously. It was a very big deal. And suddenly the 16, 17-year-old find themselves in a prison in Thailand, stripped of their rights, stripped of their freedom, stripped of their clothes. And suddenly their whole world is turned upside down. So they're standing before a judge who gives each of them 15-year sentences for what they've done. And they're devastated. And the final scene of the movie... The one friend comes before the judge and says, I am not a person of good character. I did this. She had nothing to do with it. 
I will not only serve my 15 years, I will serve my 15 years and her 15 years if you let her go free. So God just challenges her, questions her, but ultimately allows her to serve not only her 15-year sentence, but her best friend's 15-year sentence. In the final scenes of the movie, the one friend is going free and the other friend is about to be imprisoned for most of their adult life. And the question the movie asks you to think about is how would you live if you were the friend who were freed because someone else paid your sentence? Because that's what Jesus did for us, only he was not guilty of anything. He took on your sentence and my sentence. He enslaved himself. He became sin for us that we would be free, that we could live in freedom. He took the guilt so we could live in, in freedom without condemnation. Because Jesus made us pleasing to God because of what he did, he is our Lord and he is our Savior. We now say, I want to live the rest of my life, whatever I need to sacrifice, whatever I need to give up, whatever I need to do. The amazing love of God, the amazing saviorness of Jesus you know what, I don't want any other Savior. My reputation's nice, but it's not my Savior. The love of family is great, but it's not my Savior. Having money in the bank account is awesome, but it's not my God and Savior. Walking this walk is walking with your heaven, your mind set on heavenly priorities and knowing who your real functional Lord and Savior is in everyday life. And now... You're not as defensive. You don't need to lie about things to defend yourself. You don't need to fudge things. You can now acknowledge what you've done wrong quicker than you used to because you realize it's something that Jesus already saved you from. Third thing, what does it look like for us to walk while waiting on your new glorified bodies? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait. And if you think about between the Old Testament and New Testament, it's 400 years on top of the previous thousand years, they've been waiting for Messiah to come. Waiting. And then he came. And he came with a message of hope. And to start this kingdom rolling and explain the kingdom in more details. But even now we're still waiting. We're waiting for him to come and finally defeat death. Finally eliminate this tendency we have to, to give in to our own lusts and our own appetites and break our own rules and our own promises to ourselves. So Paul says, I want you to, to really... Not only live this out, but live it out while you're waiting for his second coming. Waiting for your new glorified body. Look how he says it. What does it mean to walk while waiting on your new glorified body? Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we, from which, from that citizenship, we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into his glorious body. Now see this? Of all the analogies he could use, he uses resurrection language because he's modifying and he's ex uh, building on this Christmas poem. We eagerly wait by focusing on how he's going to transform our, our lowly body into his glorious body. Now, what do I mean here? Two ways. Do you ever get worn out from sinning? <laughs> do you ever just get tired of, of having these desires that you know aren't right? Making promises to yourself, and then you gave in to them, and you knew you shouldn't have. I do. Do you ever get tired of saying, God, you're true God, but you put something in front of them and have to repent or turn from that again? 
See, part of that is what Paul calls our earth suit. This body, this earthly body I have still has appetites that lean in the wrong direction, lean toward other gods. So part of me waiting is saying, God, until I get to heaven, I am just waiting. I am just eagerly waiting for you to save me from this body of sin I am in. I just long to not struggle with the things I struggle with here on earth. But there's another way we wait. The other way we wait is the older we get, the more our body doesn't work the way it used to. You meet somebody who's like, oh, my back, oh. You're like, what happened? You're waiting for this incredible story. Oh, I don't want to tell you. No, tell me, how'd you hurt throw your back out? Oh, I sneezed. <laughs> I sneezed, right? You're like, oh, you sneezed? Yeah, I sneezed. That's how I broke my back. You replace a hip here, and you get this fixed there. Whatever it is you're getting fixed, and you increasingly are realizing that your body is not functioning the way it used to. Or maybe it's not your body. Maybe this is your first Christmas without grandma. Maybe this is the first weekend without your mom or dad. And you long for that glorified body because you know that grandpa, who didn't remember your name when you saw him last time in the hospital before he died, that new body is the body of Jesus, and it's a transformed body, a new mind, a new heart. It's no more crying and no more pain and no more agony. I just did a funeral yesterday. I'm doing two funerals this next weekend. And the hope of heaven is that we have a Jesus. We have a God who came into history so we could observe it. And he transformed his body, his earthly body, into a resurrection body. And we learn a lot about that body when he comes back. It's real. You can hug it. He can eat fish and honeycomb. It's real. Yet it's also transformed. No more pain, no more agony. And so the hope of heaven is that you can see grandma again and you can see your son or daughter who died again. And the hope of heaven is that we eagerly wait for death was defeated at his first coming, but will be finally eliminated and eradicated at his second coming. And that's what it means to eagerly wait that he would transform our lowly body into his glorified one. He goes on to say, which he's able to even subdue all things to himself. Your past, he can subdue. Spiritual forces that would tempt you, he has subdued. In fact, Ephesians kind of extrapolates on this idea. He says, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Same idea as the poem here in Philippians. Far above all principalities, all spiritual forces, all demonic forces, he's above all of them. He got above all those forces. And he put all things under his feet. And he gave him to be head over all things the church. Now this idea is victory language. This is Jesus came to defeat death once and for all. You can know this for sure. You don't have to wish you're going to get to heaven. Not maybe you're going to get to heaven. Not if I work hard enough to get to heaven. You can know because he defeated death. If you put your confidence in Jesus, all things have been subdued by him. All things are under his feet. And this image of under your feet is all through culture. To have something under your feet is to defeat it. Here's just one picture. Look how this, this, this soldier has a, a person's head under his feet. The idea from Genesis. Oh, evil will come and will bruise your heel, Jesus, but you will crush his head. You will crush death once and for all by subduing it under your feet. Here's another example. Look at how the horse is subdued under the feet, domineering, victorious. This is what Jesus did to death. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He put under his feet, he enslaved all the spiritual forces that are tempting us now. They are under his feet. And you are positioned with Jesus on high, so all those things are under your feet. You don't have to give in to them anymore. Here's Ramesses II. Look how the entire gigantic statue has the people he enslaved under his feet. Jesus says that you can walk in the pattern of resurrection life because you can walk knowing that all these things are under your feet. 
talking to a guy in our church who was in his first 18 months of marriage. Things were not going well. Both sets of parents were watching this young couple thinking they're not going to make it. It's been 18 months and they are just tearing each other apart. The husband decided to get into a Bible study with a guy in our church. Never really been in a Bible study before, but he tried everything else. It wasn't working. I'll try Jesus and God. And slowly, he began to see a pattern of a different way of living, a different way of leading, a different way of serving your spouse. And his wife started to notice he was a little less defensive, a little more selfless, a little more open. And as he continued to meditate on Jesus and live out the pattern of Jesus' life, his wife began to notice that their dead marriage had sparked life. And as he slowly changed and even was willing to adapt to her, occasionally take responsibility for what he did, she began to change. As he began to adapt, she began to adapt. As he brought life coming from someplace that wasn't him into their marriage, she began to feel the life in their marriage, and they began to adapt to each other. Just recently, they celebrated 25 years of marriage. Because 25 years ago, they found a new pattern. A new pattern for doing life. Not just using Jesus as a Savior and Lord to get to heaven. That's wonderful. But to using it as a pattern for living. That when you run out of compassion, you need resurrection compassion in your marriage. When you run out of, out of patience, you need resurrection patience for your employees or your customers. So are you walking in a pattern of dead appetites, your own flesh, your own willpower, or are you walking in the pattern of resurrection life? Which pattern are you following? Self-centered, self-exaltation, dead appetites, or servants, humility? Making yourself a no reputation. Which citizenship are you living for? Are you living to build your own castle, defend your own castle, protect your own castle, lie about your own castle so you don't have to see yourself or who you are? Are you living out of the joy of the citizenship in heaven? Did you know the Bible's called good news, the gospel, the good news of Matthew, the good news of Mark, the good news of John, the good news of Luke? Are you living in good news? Are you living in the joy of knowing that despite everything you've done and everything you don't even know you've done, he's forgiven it all? So there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You can walk around in joy without condemnation. As Paul said in the last chapter, you can forget those things you did behind. They were terrible. They were bad. I used to murder people in the name of Jesus, who are Jesus followers, in the name of Judaism. That's what Paul would say. But I forget those things that are behind. I am now walking in the resurrection life, pressing on toward that which Christ took hold of me. And what body are you living for? You living for this dead body, this earth suit, or are you living for the body of Jesus? That transformed body that he's going to give you in that final day no more aches and no more pains and no more struggles with memory. Do you realize in the amazing love of God, this king died for you and served your term for you? How should you then live? We've been meditating on this poem for the last few weeks. Now we're going to sing about the poem. I invite the band to come out. We're going to sing a song you probably recognize, but it's really what Jesus did for us. Reminds me of a story of my father. My dad, when we were 
in the 80s, especially in the late 70s when they had all that snow, like three foot, four foot snow coming through uh, Illinois. My dad had these gigantic moon boots. Did you have, did have moon boots? Might have moon boots. Big blue moon boots. Still has the same pair, by the way. And he would be walking out to get firewood because we, we, we heated our house with firewood. He'd be like, snow comes up to here. Snow comes up to here. And there'd be gigantic footprints on the way out to the fire uh, pile. And I was, you know, five years old. I could probably get swallowed up by this, except I was able to walk out to the firewood by following in my dad's footsteps. Be like, Dad, I'm following your footsteps. I'd see another one. I couldn't have done it on my own. The snow was too deep. The circumstance is too challenging. But as long as I walked in dad's footsteps, I was able to make it places I couldn't go. And that's what God wants from us. For us to walk in his footsteps, to walk in his pattern, to walk in the power of his resurrection life. Why don't you stand with me? I want to pray for us and we're going to sing. Father, we stand before you so humbled that of all the kings that have ever served through every nation, every tribe, all those kings sacrificed their servants for the sake of the king, but not you. You, O king, came with a whole new set of priorities. You sacrificed yourself for the sake of your servants. And we're so thankful for it, Father. We praise you for your love.